new music industry podcast, and I'm David Andrew Let's dig in. Today I'm chatting with Assistant Professor of Arts Management and Entrepreneurship at Baldwin Wallace University and owner of Murphy Music Press Publishing, Sean Murphy. How are you today, Sean? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So it seems like no two people can agree entirely on this. So I'm going to start off by asking what your definition of music entrepreneurship is. That's a great question. Um, I think a lot of musicians are maybe adverse to the term entrepreneurship in general because mm-hmm. the idea of mixing business concepts with like the idea of musical performance, I think to some people it's kind of like an an unholy marriage. <laughs> so I, I would define entrepreneurship as kind of the intersection of creativity and innovation. And for musicians, I feel like that's just what we do every single day in in our in our what our product and what we do. So my definition of music entrepreneurship is really just the skill set that is necessary for one to survive in the music industry itself. Mm-hmm. Because without any entrepreneurial abilities, I think we see a lot of unfortunate cases where some musicians have to change careers or kind of change music into more of a hobby than a, an income generating device. I can get behind everything you just said for sure. Because there are so many musicians out there that go, oh, but I just want to focus on the creative side of things, which I totally understand. But if you don't market your music, if nobody knows who you are, if you don't build your email list or know anything about social media or building websites, pretty much you don't have a career, right? Yeah, it's, it's difficult to be a musician, but a lot of people already possess these entrepreneurial qualities. They just don't think of them in that way. So part of what I do, I think, is also educating people on the fact that they already possess a lot of these qualities and then just manipulating them in such a way that would be beneficial for their long-term success in music is really what I feel good about doing. I think that's true too. What sort of qualities would you be looking for? Well, I think creativity is definitely at the forefront, but as I kind of referenced before, all musicians I feel like are inherently creative or they wouldn't be in this field to begin with. Yes. Beyond uh, creativity, I think the next quality that a lot of musicians sometimes have to overcome is the ability to speak to other musicians and other non-musicians and kind of like the general topic of public speaking Hmm. and general communication. A lot of musicians, you know, we're insular people. We go in the practice room for eight hours a day. We don't talk to anyone but ourselves sometimes when we're going crazy. And then oftentimes we can use our instrument as kind of like a veil to hide behind instead of, you know, articulating our thoughts with our words. So another quality I like to look for is or encourage is someone who's, you know, art, like well articulate and able to speak clearly and not feel intimidated by the idea of communicating their entrepreneurial thoughts and their musical thoughts with their voice and not just their performance medium. Wow, that's huge. And I do talk about the fact that people's skills are extremely important in my latest mini book, The Essential Guide to Music Entrepreneurship 2018 edition. So you know, if you can't see yourself developing your people skills or getting good at communication, you at least need to work with somebody who is, because that can make a tremendous difference. Certainly. I mean, even sometimes I'll tell my students, like, just talk to someone in line at Starbucks or just kind of strike up a conversation with a stranger. And eventually you won't think of it as such an anxiety inducing exercise. It's so true. And, you know, part of my background is in network marketing. So I spent about four or five years 
built trying to build that business but you can't build that business without interacting with people <laughs> so yeah you know it was like uh yeah i talked to one person today and that was a victory and gradually in- increased that right increase that I, comfort I think, zone to like three think... people and five people and you continually get yourself out there and that was part of my goal was really just to get out of my shell and begin talking to more people yeah i think it's even harder when you spend so much of your time as part of the you know, necessary skills, not communicating in a verbal way. This is kind of the great paradox of music. <laughs> what can it communicate without words? Well, we spend so much time focusing on how to to convey that meaning that sometimes we lose track of more basic functions like communicating with words. Yeah, I think music is a language and, and that is perhaps the most advantageous way of, of viewing it. You know, I say to people, I speak English, Japanese, music, and computer. <laughs> so there's <laughs> really four languages there. I grew up in Japan. That's why I speak Japanese. That might be something people don't know. But Interesting. Yeah, and computer, I mean, that's another growing language that more people probably need to speak. It is so important. And you know what? That's something I should cover in an upcoming episode or possibly in, in a future book is, is technology. But it's it changes and moves so fast that by the time you've written about it or published about it, that thought or concept or idea can be outdated. So certainly yeah yeah why is music entrepreneurship important why should people care well you know it's interesting for the non-musician i think people are like mystified by musicians to an extent and i think they just they just kind of assume that if you're really good at you know playing the french horn then there should be like no reason why you wouldn't just be playing french horn in the local (laughs) symphony you know because another another career path it's like you go to school you get a degree and there are so many employment opportunities in fields that are both directly related and sometimes unrelated. You know, you go to school and you learn about marketing. It doesn't mean you have to be marketing for this type of company that translates across all different industries. But in music, we're kind of, it's like a niche market and it's a specialized market. So why should people care about music entrepreneurship? I think because it's a survival mechanism in 2018 for artists and uh it's taken a while for i think higher education to come around and embrace this as a academic field and an area of like necessary study so if you're a musician i would i would urge you to care about it just because when you get out of school it's probably not the best time to start thinking about how you're going to run your career but rather if you thought about it like a process the same way you go through the sequences of your courses through applied study or music theory or what have you, by the time you come out on the other side, you're going to be much more prepared to succeed rather than starting at square one the day after you graduate. Yeah, I mean, there's no obvious stepping stones, right? The moment you leave school or the moment you decide to be a musician, you pretty much have to figure out what your career path is going to be. And that's exactly what happened to me. You know, I spent a year in college. That's all the post-secondary education I have. But I was asked if I wanted to go and teach guitar at that point, and I said, sure, you know, that, <laughs> but I didn't know I was going to be doing that. So it was just like I kind of arrived at that point, and I was the right person at the right time with the right skills, and I got hired on as a music instructor. Pretty soon I found out that was not something I wanted to do long term, but I ended up <laughs> teaching for the next 10 years or so. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, in being in school, there's a certain safety to it you don't have to deal with where your career is going and also i think it creates this kind of like almost like a version of like stockholm syndrome 
where you, you start to like not feel confident to have your own thoughts because you're essentially not ready. The whole time when you're in school, you're in your mind, you're a student. You can't be ready to be a professional. But with the idea of music entrepreneurship, I'm trying to get my students to embrace the idea that you're essentially a professional when you believe that you are and not when some kind of degree granting institution uh, tells you so. You know, it's really affirming to hear you say that because that's another thing I said in my book is like music entrepreneurs are those who choose themselves. Now, that's sort of a, a trendy, catchy thing in the entrepreneurship world. I think James Altucher maybe sort of coined it by saying you got to choose yourself, right? I think he has a book called Choose Yourself or something like that. But it's so true. I mean, nobody can, can point to you and say, you are now a music entrepreneur. <laughs> Although that's yeah. sort of what I try to empower my audience with, right? They say, oh, you're the music entrepreneur or you should know this or, or yeah, you're, you're the one that's uh, leading the way and, and uh, blazing a trail. And I go, no, you're the music entrepreneur and I'm trying to empower you to be that. Yeah, that's a great point. And for me as a saxophonist, you know, there's no like full-time orchestral career path that's available. So I just feel like it's kind of baked in to yeah. some some areas more than others too no it's so true uh, I you know I played a lot of solo gigs and or with other singer songwriters for years and and there's no you know there's no path for that you pretty much just have to figure out what you want to do with it and and hopefully build your fan base release more music and and progressively play bigger venues but you have to plan for it and and you have to be very action oriented about building your fan base definitely yeah and what brought you to this point why are you passionate about music entrepreneurship well you know i kind of i kind of fell into it in a way you know being a saxophonist as i said you know there you don't go through school with the ultimate goal of being a full-time orchestral employee you know you're utilized very infrequently in, in kind of like a, an on-call capacity so, you know, I always knew that I was looking for something beyond that traditional career path for performers. And again, as a saxophonist, you know, we're performing new music a lot more than maybe violins are just because of the, the nature of the instrument. So I kind of became frustrated with the fact that I could just never keep up with what the new compositions were, what were the new composers in my field, what were the new trends that performers were doing, because these new pieces were popping up all the time and they were always being just self-published by the composer. So essentially you had to be constantly on top of like 10 to 15 new pieces and as a result, new composers and as a result, new places to get this music. And it was just kind of maddening. So I just thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be great if there was a place where everyone could go and find all these compositions under just one roof. And that's what led me to start my publishing company, which is Murphy Music Press. Hmm. So I kind, of, I kind of lucked into that in a way. And after a few months of doing that, it dawned on me that if a composer is really skilled at writing a piece of music for saxophone, they're probably also equally, if not more skilled in composing for other mediums and also larger mediums. So from there, it kind of developed largely into a catalog of music for wind ensemble, you know, concert band, because concert bands are playing new music a lot more frequently than symphony orchestras. And as a result of, you know, building this publishing catalog, I've, I've got the, the great opportunity to interact and, and befriend many 
young and up and coming composers in the field and be exposed to a ton of music and, and be involved in the music industry in a way that I never really envisioned starting out as a, a saxophone performance major. Well, yeah, no kidding. I mean, <laughs> following the trajectory of, of my story, play, being a self-promoting musician for 12 years and then ending up in network marketing. And I learned some valuable lessons through that whole process of, of being in network marketing. I feel like a lot of the gaps in my knowledge got filled in about being a business owner and an entrepreneur and, and things like that. But it wasn't exactly expe the expected route Certainly there's an element of like experiential learning as you go through this, you know, because the career path is so individualized, especially in music. There's so many twists and turns and different niche markets and areas of specialization that there's always, to some extent, I think, going to be this, this discovery kind of as you go along. So true. Now, you kind of hinted at this already, but you you're mentioned that music publishing hasn't adapted to the need of composers. Why is that and how are you looking to change it? Yeah, I you know, music publishing has been around for a long time. It's certainly been around before the internet. And in the early days, the publisher had a lot of leverage in terms of marketing and promotion of music because without the internet, it is very difficult to reach large audiences of, you know, prospective performers or buyers of your music. So in exchange for this, uh, composers were willing to give up a lot. They were willing to give up the copyright to their music and they're willing to take a pretty low royalty and once that industry standard was set it just kind of continued because there's really no reason to change the model in terms of you know financial results for the publisher so what i've kind of observed is in 2018 a lot of composers are choosing not to become affiliated with a publisher because they don't want to give up the copyright and they don't want to take a royalty of, you know, 10 to 20% on music that they put their blood, sweat and tears into. Mm -hmm. So I created a model that I think is pretty modern in that I let the composers retain the copyright and then they can license that in any capacity that comes along, whether that's for a mechanical license for an honors band that wants to record it or if a university wants to record it or if there is an opportunity to license it for some kind of marching band show or whatever. And secondarily, I'm splitting the pr profits with the composer essentially 50-50 because they're the ones who have put their time and energy into creating the art of this, and I'm just kind of working on the day-to-day -day distribution, production, and, and marketing of the music. So I feel that's more of a kind of a fair relationship relative to where publishing is and has been. I think that's great, and... You know, we always give up something as authors. You know, I've published a couple of books. I've published them through CreateSpace, and so they've been self-published. And that means I give up a little bit of money to Amazon for the privilege of distribution and not having to deal with fulfillment and shipping and customer service, which is actually pretty incredible at the end of the day for me. So it, I, find, I find that's like a great deal. Um, yeah, it's a trade-off. I mean, I'm not a composer. People always ask me that at trade shows. Did you write these pieces? No. <laughs> what What I hope to provide is, you know, essentially like a non-musical service so that the composers can focus on what they do best, which is composing. Not that they're not skilled in marketing their music, but it's just a, a kind of a burden that can be alleviated through the kind of a great agreement that we've set up. Yeah. And I'm sure musicians can relate to this as well because, I mean, iTunes is kind of going the way of the dinosaur now it's turning into apple music but used to be that you'd earn what 60 70 percent of the total cut uh, on your album sales or track sales so 
similar idea. Yeah, and now Bandcamp is the cool thing, right? With the higher rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can charge whatever you want on Bandcamp for your music, and you can have people stream it or not stream it. And I found you can even sell podcast episodes through it. So there's a lot of cool things going on with Bandcamp. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How did you end up at Baldwin Wallace? Talk about your new position there. Oh, yeah. You know, it was really just a lot of a stroke of luck. Um, I'm originally from this area. Baldwin Wallace is located near Cleveland, Ohio, in a town called Berea. Mm. And I'm originally from Pittsburgh, which is about two hours away from there. But I was living in Dallas. So I saw this job posting come up and I was intrigued not only because of the location, but because, you know, Baldwin Wallace was one of the first schools to implement an actual degree program in arts management entrepreneurship in 2015. I think they were actually the nation's first to do so. So the idea of coming on board to a place that one already kind of valued this as a necessary component of education that was really appealing to me um, because you see a lot of schools are just kind of now getting around to teaching this idea or have not yet adapted it. Yes. And the other thing is knowing that this is already a really well-established program told me that I'd already instantly have a lot of colleagues I could work with in this area that would be equally, if not more knowledgeable than I on many subjects. And also that tells me that the university as a whole supports this initiative so far that there is an actual degree granting program for such studies and not just a minor. So I ended up there and I'm starting very shortly here and I'm, I'm very thrilled for the opportunity to work with all the the, the faculty and staff at Baldwin Wallace. Yeah, absolutely. I think my new mini book is currently being considered for curriculum at uh, another university. I don't remember where, but that kind of opportunity is always exciting. Yeah, and I'm hoping that we can create some kind of a platform where I can provide some experiential learning for the students through the publishing company, although I'm not sure where we're at with that, but I'm hoping that's something that could be offered. Very cool. I'm going off the rails a bit here, but uh, the pictures make it look quite beautiful. So what is it like to be in Ohio? Well, it's definitely a beautiful uh, pastoral kind of scene. You know, in Dallas here, it's very hot. And we don't have seasons. We just have hot, more hot, and less hot. Gotcha. It's just generally hot. Um, you know, Berea is a beautiful place. There's there's actually seasons. There's hills and valleys to the road. It's not all flat like here in Dallas. And uh, I'm not looking forward to shoveling snow, but it's a small trade-off, I think, to be in a, an area that has a really great culture as far as like Cleveland. You know, we have the Cleveland Symphony like 15 minutes away. We have Playhouse Square, which I think is the second largest uh, musical theater space outside of New York. And But it's not super urban in that way like New York. I mean, there's still lots of greenery and the such that's available in you know, national parks in addition to a, you know, a very fine cultural atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate that I live in a townhouse and uh, the landscaping people take care of the snow. So I don't have to <laughs> be involved in that. But I, I hear you. I, you know, I've lived here long enough to have uh, shoveled my my fair share of snow. I, I haven't shoveled in like a decade, so I'm going to have to get back into it. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, it's good. It's good exercise. Now, one of the things I talk about in my latest mini book is the fact that there seems to be a focus on employment in music entrepreneurship programs. It is a fantastic, you know, it is fantastic that graduates find themselves employed at record labels, concert venues, broadcasting, cable television stations, and so on. But what am I missing here? That doesn't sound like entrepreneurship. That's a good point. 
I think that sometimes people will gravitate towards such a career path because it's definitely safer, right? right. There's a lot of un- unknowns with entrepreneurship. You have to deal with essentially working for yourself, and that can be very unpredictable. So I think a lot of these programs, they like, they enjoy the fact that there are such entities that exist, record labels and the such, where graduates can go and immediately get experience and full-time employment. Uh, it's my hope that students at BW and our, you know, and other entrepreneurship programs as well would have three avenues available as far as generating income, their own personal musical or artistic endeavors that could be, you know, leveraged as far as teaching or performing either, you know, regularly or semi-regularly. Then my second goal is for them to have some kind of entrepreneurial idea or vision that they would uh, grow and facilitate over the years, both in school and out of school. And then my third hope is that they also have the ability to work in an area that you just described because it does provide stability. It also provides uh, connections and experience mm. that could be helpful. But as you know, I mean, growing a business takes a long time. Yeah. I started my publishing company in 2012 and it took at least three to four years before it was really profitable enough that the, the revenue could be you know, reinvested back in the business and not just held on to and amassed. So I want students to be entrepreneurial like you're describing, but I also want them to have enough time that their entrepreneurial venture would definitely be successful. So I think it's kind of a balancing act in that way. Yeah, I see what you mean. Uh, it's sort of like being a guitar teacher, which I did for many years, or some kind of music instructor. You can spend basically your evenings after school hours teaching students and spend the rest of your day practicing preparing materials maybe even recording or working on your own stuff you know you could leave your weekends open for gigs so you can sort of have both careers happening at the same it's hard but you can have both careers going at the same time it's difficult yeah but i think it it really helps you know grow your network even even more broadly. That's true. Because, you know, as a, in my capacity as a saxophone performer, I know other saxophone players. And then when I publish music for saxophone, I feel like that's beneficial having these kind of cross relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of people I met through teaching guitar for sure. Other teachers, people who, you know, the front counter staff at music stores and, and some gig opportunities came through that as well. So, being a part of that is actually can be beneficial. And then, you know, something else just to consider is just the amount of time it takes to grow the business. You know, I started the publishing company when I was a master's student. So if I would have had to rely on just that alone, it would have been a rough time. So <laughs> just allowing enough time for a business to grow. And it takes time to really develop like a brand identity and develop a process and develop a system that's going to be functional. No, you're actually 100% correct because 2014 was when I made the decision to really begin building this. I've been podcasting for many years prior to that. I think I started podcasting in 2009. So I'm basically up to nine years of podcasting at this point, which is crazy to think. But I think 2014 is when I really got serious. And while I was building it, I just said yes to every opportunity that came my way. And and this will actually segue nicely into another question. But I started, you know, teaching guitar again. <laughs> I, I, I kind of stopped for a little bit. And then I started working as a theater tech at the university. And then by day I was like writing content and, and doing some freelance writing. So I did that for 
pretty steadily for two years. And then summer 2016, I was able to start working completely from home where content writing was the only other thing I was doing because it was actually proving to be quite lucrative and I could no longer have to work as a music teacher or a theater tech. Nice. Yeah. So I, I know what you mean. Like it, it definitely took a while to get to that point. It wasn't instantaneous yeah. and I was working so many side gigs and is, you know, essentially having three or four jobs at the same time. Cause I was still performing too. Yeah. It's all about having a good side hustle sometimes to help you out. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about freelancing. What kinds of freelancing opportunities are available today? I think, you know, the more that this kind of work from home mentality has developed, I think freelancing has kind of blossomed in that way. Yeah. Everyone has an internet business now, right? <laughs> everyone everyone has a page on every type of hosting platform where you could find employment. You know, I need someone to teach guitar lessons, for example. You know, I'm sure there's hundreds of website platforms where I could find a guitar teacher. So yes. freelancing, I think, has developed in such a way where it can be both a side job for someone, as you were just describing, or it could be a primary source of employment with kind of other freelancing and different categories along the way. But I think the connotation of freelancing has a certain element of fear associated with it. Like, ooh, you're freelancing. Like, how's that going? Yeah. Because it's very it's unpredictable and it's uh nothing's promised so i think i think this idea the fear of freelancing because of the development of all these different electronic platforms to facilitate freelance employment i think it's made it a lot more a lot more practical but at the same time you always you have to keep in mind the success of freelancing if it's location bound is always going to be correlated in some way to the location itself you know it's easier to freelance in a town of a hundred thousand people than it is a thousand. Hmm. But if you're doing it all electronically, then you're no longer bound by this type of thing. So it really depends on the work. You know, in my experience, you know, living in Dallas for the, almost the past decade, I think it's like the fifth or sixth largest market in America. I can't remember Dallas Fort Worth combined. So there's a lot of people. There's always, um, you know, new businesses relocating to the Dallas Fort Worth area because there's no state tax. And as a result of that, more employees move over here and more businesses come and just more, there's more opportunity for freelancing in terms of a musical uh, one-on-one interaction, like guitar lessons that you were just describing. Mm. But in your case, you were telling me how you live in Alberta and because you're, you're not location bound in your work, I think freelancing is equally beneficial in your situation because you don't have to rely on face-to-face contact. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, self-employment or freelancing is kind of a stepping stone onto entrepreneurship, right? I think Evan Pagan described it that way. The cash flow quadrant actually comes from Robert Kiyosaki. So you have ESBI, employee, self-employed, business owner, investor. And then Evan Pagan was the one that described it as being stepping stones. So you learn everything you can as an employer or employment in employment. And then you can step on to the next step, which is, of course, self-employment. And then you can upgrade to business owner and then finally to investor. Now, a lot of people don't follow that trajectory. And I have have very limited experience in employment myself. I just wasn't really cut out for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of skipped that step. <laughs> exactly. Didn't, didn't really need it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of riding that line between self-employed and on, entrepreneur these days because I'm always 
starting things and looking for opportunities to invest, but simultaneously I still have my head down in the work a lot. So, yeah, me too. But re- people react the same way with business, right? It's not just freelancing. It's like, ooh, business. How's that doing? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. It's a dubious term. Dubious term. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, you know, I will be one of the first to raise my hand and say, you know what, the the gig economy is pretty cool. There's a lot of opportunities. I think the main way to mitigate risk is just to make sure you have a lot of connections and different opportunities on the go. And yes, at times it will be organized chaos, guaranteed. It was for me. There's there was definitely some days where I, I barely slept at all. But uh, it, it does work out. It definitely can if you have a good mix of opportunities in front of you. Yeah, I think it really leads to like a really kind of rich lifestyle that's very diverse and you're not going to kind of get in the rut of kind of like factory line, you know, employment in a metaphorical way. Oh, not at all. And even in the midst of that, there were some really great high paying gigs that I played, uh, mostly with the tribute band, but still, you know, got to do something I enjoy and get paid good money for it while I'm working at a bunch of other projects at the same time. So you can still fit your music career in there too. Yeah, definitely. So many musicians today ask, like, how do you make any money? And I have a blog post called 21 Ways I've Made Money in the Music Industry. I actually need to update it because it's probably more like 23 ways now. And, you know, and I try to point them to this and, and to some other resources out there and, and things showing different ways of making money. But with streaming being what it is now, we all know that, you know, streaming royalties are really low so what are your thoughts on this and can musicians make money i would say definitely with the right mindset same with the right mindset i think a lot of times sometimes musicians have a tendency to kind of be like martyrs of the art you know (laughs) or art for art's sake you know it kind of goes back to this idea of like patronage like you know from the 16 1700s that there's going to be someone who's going to pay you for your art as as mm. just an aesthetic thing. So can, mus- can musicians make money? Yes, but they have to make sure that the product that they're trying to monetize is one that is monetizable. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, there are different size audiences for different types of projects. One thing that I kind of like to point out to some of my students sometimes is that if you're giving a performance and it's like a ticketed performance, you can't just say, come to my concert because I'm really good. Exactly. There are a lot. There are a lot of people who are really good, and there's no matter how good you get at whatever your medium is, there's always going to be someone better than you. So you can't really hang your hat on the idea of just being the best, and that's why you should check me out. What musicians, I think, they need to do to make money in the industry is change the the framing of the the project or the idea in such a way that it would be kind of compactly understood, appreciated, and empathize with to an extent by the audience so if you're going to play a piece a concert that's all programmatic music that's based on some kind of common denominator it'd be much more wise to come up with some kind of thematic marketing technique rather than just being like come to my recital there's a lot of notes so musicians can make money but they have to think about they have to kind of reverse engineer it essentially is what i'm saying instead of starting with the art yeah, I think it's mostly just about thinking about it a little bit differently because musicians will just play gigs because 
you know, they're, they're offered the opportunity without really actually thinking about how much money they're going to make or the fees that are going to be paid out or any guarantee. Or, you know, it, it's a gig that with that uh, they'll, they'll earn money on the door or the ticket sales. But then they, they do nothing to market it or they book it in, on short notice. So they end up not making any money because they, they couldn't put any time into marketing or promotion. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, you always have to take into account in a playing situation the amount of time that's allocated to whatever type of practice you're going to put into the gig. That's another thing that people sometimes don't put into the quotient. Well, that's very true. Uh, that sort of goes back to the conversation I had with my coach, James Schramko, right? EHR, your effective hourly rate. It's not just the time that you're on stage. It's the time you spent uh, preparing and practicing and rehearsing. And it's also the spent time you spent setting up and tearing down. All that uh, counts towards the hours that you've put into earning that money. So, And certainly, you know, you have to walk a fine line between you, you saying yes to everything and saying yes to nothing, mm-hmm. you know? There's a correlation, I think, of where you are in your career trajectory and where you are on your saying yes ratio. When you're younger, it's sometimes easier to say yes to everything. And sometimes it's necessary because you're trying to build connections, you're trying to diversify. Then as you get a little more established, you can kind of be more selective and hopefully have more employment in your areas of specialization rather than trying to say yes to every single gig that comes along, even if it's totally out of your wheelhouse. It has to be, you know, I had a recent podcast about the power of yes and the power of no, and nothing could be truer, right? Like you do need to say yes a lot earlier in your career. You need to do that sometimes for many years, even while it's getting to be organized chaos in your life and it's uncomfortable, but eventually you will come to that point where you can say no or hell yeah. Kind of like what Derek Sever says, you know, if it's something that you really want to do, it's a hell yeah. If you're sitting there going, mm, yeah, I don't know, it's a no. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and also to your point, uh, this is what I was thinking about earlier. There, you know, there's videos online of world class violinists playing in the street, and nobody pays any heed to them. So yes, selling yourself on the idea that you're better or that you're really good as a musician definitely does not work. Oh, that's just the worst. Yeah, everyone's really good now. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 like step one, not step ten absolutely i think so too learning an instrument you know again Derek service talked about the fact that he would just lock himself in a room and play guitar all day long when he was trying to get good at it so uh, that is i mean you'd have to figure out your living expenses and things like that but that is sort of the approach you need to take like okay first i'm going to become a craftsperson i'm going to get good at what i do and then i'm going to go up and, and take it to the world and performing can help that process because you can learn a lot from performance too but yeah definitely and sometimes sometimes you know in a university environment sometimes there's too much emphasis placed on that craftsmanship and not enough on the other steps so i think we're seeing a nice revolution to an extent in that way of thinking to help you know facilitate musicians make money well, that's why I exist. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm trying to pick up the, the, the pieces there where, where things left off for a lot of musicians. You know, they got their performance figured out and they learned how to read music and how to compose music. And now it's time to market and share it with the world. So, you know, that's why I do what I do because they need help with that. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, there can be a world where musicians are adept at both skills in like a 50-50 capacity. But we're not quite there yet, I don't think. No, no, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. And so here are a few business-related questions. What are some of the biggest struggles you've encountered as an entrepreneur? That's a good question. 
you know, a lot of learning experiences, probably the, the something that really, you know, showed my naivete in the beginning was I started this, this venture, you know, I was like 23 and all of a sudden I was like, what are self-employment taxes? What is this thing? <laughs> and, and, and a lot of musicians, you know, we are not trained in this even to the, to the bare minimum. So kind of, and I was much younger, an early thing for me was figuring out what, what am I on the hook for in terms of, you know, in the United States, self-employment taxes and the such, and how's that going to factor into you know, the decisions I make with the business. So that was definitely a learning point for me. And now, you know, there's always something going on with taxes. Now the new thing is going to be uh, these taxes on internet sales and how that's going to factor into hmm. into taxes and the such because, you know, local businesses are being out leveraged by internet companies because they don't have to pay the subsequent state taxes. So there's new there's new things pending on that, at least here. So that was definitely something. Yeah. So in the last few years, I reached that point in my income threshold where I had to start paying the government sales taxes. And and that, you know, I had to set up a, a payment program to pay them, pay them back that money. But yeah, it was unexpected, right? You know, I went from a certain income level and suddenly I crossed that line and now I'm owing more taxes, which is how it yeah, works. I, so. They said that's good, right? That's always what I tell myself. Yeah, exactly. It's good. It's good that I reached that level and hopefully, you know, go well beyond that, make a lot, a lot so that uh, I can give away a little bit of that a lot to the government. Something else I've kind of learned, you know, through experiences is kind of just like the power of a face to face connection versus an electronic connection. When you meet someone in real life, even if you're communicating the same material that you would be communicating in an email or a text message, it has this kind of has staying power. And when I started taking the company to conferences and meeting with the customers in real life who I had already seen come through on the, the electronic side of things who had made purchases or I'd been in communication with, it was a lot easier to work with them as repeat customers or garner new customers just because we had met. It's something as simple as that, which I really undervalued in the beginning of the business. Mm. I get that too, because a lot of my time right now goes towards content creation. And that means most of the time I'm hermiting in my lap, just going to work on all these things. doesn't mean I don't have any interaction with people. I obviously do, but I think you're absolutely right. Like getting out in front of where your customers are going to be is like hugely important. Especially in, for an internet business that lacks a physical place, you know, there's no yeah. brick and mortar Murphy Music Press storefront. You know, it's an electronic internet business, so that kind of makes it all the more insular. And a lot of businesses are like this too. So I think just the power of a personal connection has really taught me a lot. Yeah, it's not just what you know, but also who you know. It's huge. Yeah. What are some of the biggest victories you've experienced as an entrepreneur? Um, biggest victories. When I met someone, a famous conductor one time, and they told me that they've heard of me, I was just like, yes. <laughs> because when, when you run a business, you don't have the like, kind of reflexive perception of what other people think about you or if they even know of you. Of course, you know of you. You're you. You're living it every single day. But the validation of other people knowing like your brand and what that brand stands for and what it represents in like an exterior way is like a huge 
huge accomplishment in my opinion because it's just validation. Absolutely. You know, some of the things I experienced too are just that that disconnect. It's it's probably just like still figuring out what my branding and marketing is in a way like people will come to me wanting to get advice about their podcast or about their website on affiliate marketing and then I go, "Oh yeah, of course. I'm I'm talking to music entrepreneurs. This is <laughs> you know, yeah. so I'm getting recognized in that community. So I sh- of course I should be ready to uh offer them some tips and advice and, and help because I know how to work that stuff. I guess, you know, there's some expectation early on that I would be talking more directly to musicians and sometimes that's the case. But with, with musicians, I find I'm just helping them with music distribution and websites and, and sort of the, the basics, get their online presence covered and things like that. And I, but I yeah. think it is, it is in some ways more fun for me to think about how can I help them generate more, more income from their podcast. Yeah, for sure. You know, another thing, the more I think about it, it wasn't like a singular point where I was just like, yes, I've reached the mountaintop. But like, yeah, you know, I had a teacher that said, you know, sometimes, you know, it's just good to stop and kind of like look back and see how you've gotten from like step one to step, you know, whatever step you're on, step a thousand. So just like kind of sometimes thinking about the idea that an observation I had that saxophone music wasn't readily available in a singular point was able to lead to the creation of this business, the implementation of like a lot of really talented composers. And then eventually that was able to help me get my foot in the door in higher education and you know, eventually lead me to this job at Baldwin Wallace. That that was kind of a, a, a nice realization for me as well, just to kind of see the trajectory laid out for you. Because when you're living it, you don't know the twists and turns that are going to come along with that. And then when it's finally reached a certain, you know, critical mass, you can look back and be like, wow, what a ride. Mm. So a business that was born out of your own challenges, essentially. Yeah, essentially. That's great. I mean, that's sometimes how things get started, right? You observe a problem, something that you feel should be solved, and you look online or you do a little bit of research and you go, why doesn't this exist? <laughs> yeah. Then, I've had so many of those like non-musical ideas I just say to my wife, why don't people invent this yet? We should invent this yet. And she's just like, calm down with that. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, also an entrepreneurial tendency for sure, right? Is uh, the yeah. shiny object syndrome, something I also talk about in my mini book which I've mentioned far too many times in this episode. But <laughs> speaking of books, though, are there any books that have inspired and helped you on your journey, if not any blog posts or podcasts that have? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of books that have helped. I mean, in the music realm, I think kind of like our our staples are like the Angela Beeching Beyond Talent and the David Cutler, the Savvy Musician. I think those are kind of like our the mm-hmm. basics. But a lot of times I'll like to... Uh, you know, venture outside of the music realm and just read books about business in general. But Same. I don't, sometimes I don't like the books that are like highly motivational, like 10 ways to start loving yourself more today. Like that doesn't really <laughs> appeal to me as much. So the, you know, some, the greatest book I ever read is by Paul Downs, Boss Life. Do you know this book? I don't. This is a book. I think it works perfectly for musicians because it's not by a musician. It's by an entrepreneur who makes custom boardroom tables for large corporations. But it's like an art in itself. The, you know, the drafting of this table, they're all custom tables. And it's a every chapter is a month. It's, it's a one-year retrospective of what's going on with this business, the struggles, the, the challenges, the accomplishments, and just the day-to-day kind of emergencies. And it's just like really affirming to see all this stuff translates uh, beyond music to just kind of entrepreneurship in general. Yeah. And I've found it totally works the other way too. Like 
when I put out my first book, The New Music Industry, people would say like, oh, this could totally be applied to just about any small business. And I said that, you know, when I think about it, that's true. Yeah. So yeah, Boss Life by Paul Downs. I think it's called Surviving My Own Business. It's like the subtitle. Sounds like a great book. I need to check that out. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for your time and your generosity. Is there anything else I should have asked? I think we've touched on, on everything. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, and uh, I wish you the best with the, the continued success of this podcast. You too. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Make sure to go to musicentrepreneurhq.com for show notes and other goodies, and leave us a review in iTunes to help us spread the word. 